Around 1969, a manager named Frank Pip came up with an idea. He ran assembly at a Ford Motor Company plant, and he said to some people on his team, go out and buy some Japanese cars, brand new. Let's see how they're put together. At the time, at Ford and at every other American car company, the standard way to assemble a car was to use a rubber mallet, that each part that came in was whacked with a mallet to fit into the other part. If there was a rare occasion when you didn't need a mallet, it was called snap fit. Snap fit was the exception. Well, Pip discovered something extraordinary. The Toyotas were 100% snap fit. They could take the car apart and put it back together without using a mallet once. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about Perfect and also my new book. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Ramon, it's Seth. Hey, Seth, this is Ramon. Good to be here with you. Thanks for having me. My friend Ramon Ray is launching a new workshop on the Akimbo platform. It's really special. It's really important. What's it about, Ramon? Yeah, this is small business essentials. Not only do you have the videos and the content, the modules, but you're learning with others. And for me, that is most special because many of us are alone. We think we're alone in this journey. So that's one. Regarding small business essentials, Seth, as you know, I've started four small companies. And I think what's always there for me is that it is hard work. Two, it's highly rewarding. And three, oftentimes, and I've learned this from you in doing this workshop, we get so much into the weeds and tactics that we forget the high-level thought that goes behind why are we doing it. So inside this workshop, people I think are going to open their eyes to things that A, they didn't know, or things they knew but didn't know why they were doing it. That's why I'm excited about it. Fantastic. How do we find out more? Where do we go? Yeah, akimbo.com slash essential. Thanks, Ramon. We'll see you there. Thanks, Seth. Sign up anytime until October 28th, 2020 at akimbo.com slash essentials. Well, you may have guessed what happened when Pip shared this news with the senior executives. They stared at him, silent for a while, and then one of them said, the customer will never notice. We're really confused about what perfect means. We're really confused about what good enough means. And the pursuit of perfection. Oh, let me... Say it again, I was a little closer. The pursuit of perfection. Oh, my timing was a little bit off. The pursuit of perfection gets in the way of doing the work that we need to do. This is episode 120, give or take, of the Akimbo podcast. And I can confidently say that every single episode has been imperfect. There's no doubt about it. The timing, the levels, the phrasing, the fact-checking, the word choice. Never once, not one episode has been perfect. Even my favorite podcasts, things like 99% Invisible or Episode 3 of Mystery Show, not perfect. So what makes it a great podcast? What does it mean to see a live Broadway show when we know that it is not exactly the same as it was yesterday? If it's not exactly the same, which one was perfect? What does the pursuit of perfect, let's call it perfectionism, actually mean? Are we doing it 
to serve the customer? I don't think so. Back to this idea of the customer will never notice. Well, in this case, clearly, the Ford executive was wrong because he didn't understand the Japanese outlook on quality. The Japanese weren't making quality parts because they were hiding from something, because they were perfectionists. They were making quality parts because sticking to spec, going within tolerance of spec, actually made everything in the production of the car more profitable. Quality is free. And in addition, the customer does notice. Because with mechanical things, when it's a little out of whack, it gets a little more out of whack. When parts don't fit precisely correctly, they get worse over time. And that tighter tolerances led to better cars, which the customers noticed. But, and it's a huge but, if you go into your driveway to your brand new Lexus and take any part from that brand new car and look at it with an electron microscope, you will see that it's not perfect at all. There are giant pits and peaks and valleys. It is out of whack to some decimal point, maybe 0.00001 inches. Who knows? It's a really small number. But it's not perfect. It's good enough. It meets spec. Now, it is entirely possible that as a marketing effort, your definition of good enough is much better than people expect. If you define good enough as remarkable in the way the customer experiences it, you've still defined what good enough is. So if I shipped something, Federal Express back in the old days, when a letter took four days and FedEx got there by 10.30, that was worth talking about because it arrived the next day. If it got there at 10.15, it's not better than getting there at 10.30, certainly not dramatically better. If I need to make copies of a legal document, 300 DPI looked at through a magnifying glass is not perfect at all. 1200 DPI approaches retina level, and it's hard for me to tell the difference unaided. But with enough magnification, even 2400 DPI, which is really difficult and expensive to do in an office printer, is hardly perfect at all. How perfect does a legal document need to be if I'm making a copy of it? I think we can all agree that if I can accurately read everything that's on the document without being distracted by its resolution, it is good enough. And that's its job. There are lots of other things that I want that copier to do. I want that printer to never jam. I want it to cost less to use, etc. But I'm not willing to pay an extra penny to go from 300 to 600 DPI on the laser printout used for internal documents. Good enough is something to be proud of. Better than good enough means somewhere along the way, you've made the spec probably incorrectly. But back to perfectionism. The reason we embrace perfectionism is a little complicated. On one hand, we've got Frank Pip, who correctly said, this place is making shoddy stuff. Ford can do better. Look what our competitors are doing. We are going to get killed. That meant he wanted the spec to be better. He didn't think he needed to make a perfect Mustang or a perfect Pinto, but it would be good to make one that didn't explode when it was in a rear-end collision. It would be good to make one that lasted an extra five or 10,000 miles, but you need to make one and you need to ship it. 
to ship creative work. Bringing our creative work to the world is our job. If it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. And this is important. It's not just ship it, which implies, what the hell, ship some junk, get it out there. It is instead about setting spec appropriately and then merely shipping it, merely shipping it without commentary, without a lot of drama, and without perfectionism. Day after day, hour after hour, week after week, we ship the work. I call this the practice. The practice is a process. It's an approach. It's a belief that the only way to make things better is to make things and then to learn what the customer wants, to learn how to engage with the market to make them better still. It is a process. Album after album after album, the working musician makes her work. Page after page after page, the working author makes their work. This new book's got 200 little chapters in it, and as far as I can tell, there are no typos, so it meets spec. But if I rewrote the book, I wouldn't rewrite it word for word the same way because there's a difference between it being perfect and it meeting spec, it being something that changes people. That what we need to do when we ship creative work is to understand what all three words mean. Ship, because as I said, if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. Ship, because ship gives us the chance to engage with the person we made it for. If it's not good enough for them, we're doing shoddy work. We need to make it better. Creative. Creative means you're doing something that might not work. You're doing something where perfect is unknown. You're doing something human, something generous, something that might make things better, something to make a change. And work, work because we do it even when we don't feel like it. Work because we do it before we're in the mood, that we get into flow because we're doing the work, not the other way around. And built into all of this, is that while perfectionism is about us, our belief, our perception of what we're doing, a place to hide by saying it's not perfect yet, good enough, spec, great work, remarkable work, is not about us. It is about the person we are making it for, which means we have to figure out who we're making it for. We have to be able to find our smallest viable audience and bring them the smallest viable breakthrough. We have to figure out how to show up for the people we seek to serve and ignore everyone else. Reading the reviews from people you didn't make the work for is a trap. It pushes you toward perfectionism. Because in this case, when you're trying to reach lots of people with something that everyone is going to interpret differently, you can't sand off enough edges. You can't make it beige enough for everyone, average enough for everyone indistinguishable enough for everyone. So no, a Toyota Corolla isn't even for everyone, even though they sell millions and millions of them. It's not for someone who wants to hot rod. It's not for someone who wants to haul a big family. And it's not for someone who enjoys tinkering with a car that's a little fussy. It has no Italian racing heritage. It doesn't make a noise like a Lamborghini or an Aston Martin. And so for all those things it doesn't do, it makes a very specific promise about what it does do. 
And that's what we need to do with our work. We need to develop a practice of shipping regularly for the people we seek to serve, to make the change we seek to make, to do it without drama, without a lot of internal commentary. We must never accept shoddy work. It doesn't make any sense to make something not as good as it should be. But we will always be making things that are not as good as they could be. Because if we have unlimited time and unlimited money, of course we would make something differently. But we don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited money. And we must interact with the market. We must bring our work to other people so we can learn what they want, how they're interacting with it, what's important to them. So yes, we need a point of view. We need to make assertions. We need to lead. We are not running a focus group to ask people what they want because they don't know. But what we are doing today, more easily than ever before, is shipping the work. Here, I made this. Here, I made this. No, it's not perfect, but maybe it met spec. And maybe my spec is exactly what you needed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'll be back in a second with a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. I wrote a new book. It was originally called Trust Yourself. But my editor persuaded me correctly to change the title to The Practice. If you'd like to see a free excerpt and a summary, visit trustyourself.com. Got to do something with that domain. Check it out. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll drop me a note. Just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam calling in from Berlin. Your episode on hedonic treadmill got me thinking about how billionaires change our culture. Like you mentioned in the episode how when billionaires play the game of rising on or going faster on the hedonic treadmill, they tend to accumulate a lot of wealth. And in the episode, you implied that this wealth comes at a cost to society. But what if a billionaire's impulse to gather more wealth can also bring something to society? Because assuming that they are always accumulating wealth assumes that whatever they are doing through business or through innovation is a zero-sum game, which it often isn't. So my question to you is, what if billionaires playing on the hedonic treadmill actually ends up being beneficial to society in so many ways? And we see that happening with so many of the billionaires and the innovations that they're bringing about. Thank you. Thank you, Anupam. I love hearing your questions all the way from Berlin. This one is complicated. I am not arguing that money gets hoarded hurting other people because money is a fiction. Governments can print more money. If everyone puts a bunch of money in their mattress, it's out of circulation. The government can print more. No, I'm talking about several other things when we talk about 
people who are billionaires. The first one comes from measuring value. Is a great teacher worth less than a really effective bond trader? Because a bond trader, somebody who works in the stock market, might make millions and millions of dollars a year. And a hardworking teacher who's putting themselves on the line every day to do the important work of helping us raise our kids might make 1% of what that bond trader is making. Are they creating 1% as much value? Well, I guess it depends on how you measure it. Lin-Manuel Miranda created the most successful Broadway show of his generation. He's not a billionaire. Isabel Wilkerson wrote a book that changed my life and the life of a lot of other people. She's not a billionaire. We could go down the list. Jimmy Wales developed Wikipedia. He's not a billionaire. Vint Cerf invented much of the underlying technology of the internet. He's not a billionaire. There's no connection between value created and whether or not you're a billionaire unless we only measure value created in terms of easily measured dollars. And in order to get from a million dollars, which most people would consider a lot of money, 10 million, more than you'll need for the rest of your life, to a billion or 50 billion dollars, we have to multiply it by a thousand. And so the question we'd start with from a public policy point of view is, do we need a thousand time bigger incentive to get people to do the hard work of making billions and billions of dollars? I'm not sure we do, because there are plenty of people who are teachers who are putting in hard work, and even more people who aspire to make $5 million who are working super hard as well. Number two, billionaires sometimes achieve their goal as the result of market failure. Now, what I mean by market failure is this. In an efficient, free market, as soon as a company starts making a significant profit, competitors will arise. And those competitors will offer something better, cheaper, faster to the people that the profitable company is serving. Now, it's in the momentary exceptions to this over time that companies are able to create significant profits. But yeah, the companies of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s are mostly gone now because their profit was taken by a new company in a free market. Now let's consider Google, which is under antitrust investigation because they are a monopoly. They're a monopoly who in just two weeks can shut down many, many companies on the internet by starving them of traffic. And they're a monopoly in the sense that a majority of search ads go to Google. Search ads, who are they benefiting? Well, we know who they're costing. They're costing the consumer. Because if a company is paying Google 20 or 30 or $40 a click to get traffic because they have to pay that much to win the auction because Google's a monopoly, then the question is, who's paying the 20 30 or $40? Well, the answer ultimately is the consumer. That because there's only one search engine, Google's whims have a significant impact on the market, and the value that is created is moved from the checkbook of the consumer and the balance sheet of the other companies, their customers, to Google. All of those billions and billions of dollars are not part of what most people think of as the free market. Or if we think about wages, a long time ago, Henry Ford raised the wages of people 
at the plant, you know, the one where Frank Pip worked in the 1960s. He went from paying machinists 50 cents a day to $5 a day. He was selfishly motivated to do that because he figured, A, he'd get plenty of workers and he needed them. B, it would create a middle class that could afford the product he was making because other companies would have to follow suit. So if I look at a company like Amazon, what would happen if Amazon took a stock price hit in the short run and paid their 100,000 lowest paid people more money or gave them better, easier working conditions? If they did that, Jeff Bezos might end up being a little bit less of a billionaire. But then what would happen? Where would value flow? In which direction? So what I'm arguing is that a talented or lucky person who becomes a billionaire, what do they do after that? Do they turn the dial toward more monopoly, toward expanding market failure, toward building moats, fighting adversarial interoperability, buying the outcome of elections, fighting regulation, working in opposition to what helps plenty of other people? Or do they seek to create new kinds of value that pay off in terms of respect from the community, that pay off in terms of a planet, a place where they're happy to live? Oxfam reports that last year, 2019, 1% of the population of the earth, the richest 1%, I'm super privileged, I am part of that group in the Western world, put in twice as much carbon to the atmosphere as 50% of the population. That's another example of market failure, in this case, externalities. Because if externalities aren't taken care of, it is possible to turn the dial and pump more stuff into the air that you don't have to pay for. So I am not arguing that we come in, level everything, and give everybody an equal amount of money. The purpose of the hedonic treadmill episode was to help people see that just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean A, you're creating the maximum amount of value for the maximum amount of people, and B, that you have to do that all the time, forever. There are lots of things to measure. Life is short. Our potential is high. There is plenty of possibility. What will we do with it? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and 
we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.